weakness. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, uh, we'll start reading in verse number 9 maybe. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also you do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there. We could finish out that chapter, but more than we can cover already here. So he, he begins and... Um, God hath not appointed us to wrath. This is by the, the design and the will of God. And I, I realize you know that, but may God recall that to our memory, that it's not by our choosing or by our will or by our way that man is saved. If, if God had by any means left this to me, I would have failed from it, just as Adam did in the garden, and I'd have never come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God, in His great compassion for us, He, he manifested our need by the Word of God and by the Spirit and brought us into Christ Jesus. Indeed, uh, while this may go against the grain, I believe if, if you'll think about it, you'll see it's the truth. I was regenerated before I ever come to God. I had to be. He changed my mind. He changed my thinking. He changed my heart and convicted me of sin before I ever come to Him, before I ever repented. And so God was working the truth. God wasn't waiting on me to work, but God worked in order that I could. Amen. So that what we have today is always a result of the working of God. So He, he, he died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. So whether we're here and we're living and serving, that word sleep there through the New Testament, you see it in reference to death. But through this salvation that God provided, whether we're here in the body, we're living together with Him by the presence of the Spirit. And when those that are His saints leave this world, they have an eternal home in heaven. Amen. So all of this then, this work of salvation, this promise of redemption and of heaven, all of that hinges on what God has done in Jesus Christ. We have that because Christ died for us and because God called us into that. So these, these works then after this, this is not for me to be saved. And I, I believe we ought to be careful there. A lot of times it can be taken and be twisted into that that God never intended it to be. He's clear in 9 and 10 that our salvation is of the Lord, that God wrought our salvation, and God brought us into the family of God, and yet there's direction in the New Testament for my life. People think today, well, we're under grace, and we can just do how that we see fit, and however seems right to me, and however seems right to you, but that does not line up with the teaching of the apostles. So he's going to give some direction, not for my salvation. Again, in the Old Testament, the law of God said, do this or you're going to die. 
do this or judgment's going to come upon you. Or it said, do not do this or judgment's going to come. Well, in the New Testament, we're free from judgment. We're not living under the fear that God is going to crash down out of heaven and, and pour his wrath out upon us because he's already poured his wrath out on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord drunk the cup of the wrath of God. He bore the punishment for our sins. But it is for our benefit in this life that we follow these, this prescription of God for us. He saves us and desires us to live in a manner that would exalt Him as we live amongst our fellow man. And it's through our behavior. We talked a little bit about that this morning. But the way I behave myself in this world represents the one that I say that I belong to. So if I behave myself unseemly, if, if you see me outside of here behaving myself unseemly, then the next time I come to preach to you, that's going to be fresh in your mind. The devil will make sure that it's fresh in your mind. And what I have to say and what I have to preach, whether it's good or whether it's bad, it's going to be off upsetting to you because you say, well, wait a minute, I know how that man behaves. And so our behavior can greatly hinder any testimony that we've got. If our behavior, I, I heard it said like this one time, it'd be like sharing the gospel with bad breath. That no matter how sweet the words are, that smell would offset. Our behavior does that if it's not as it ought to be. So he begins here, And we beseech you, brethren, know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So here he's saying, and notice, it's not, it's not the man and his character that we're upholding, but for the work's sake. There's an office here. And you know, that's the way it is for uh, the highway patrol, for the sheriff's department. We don't know anything about those men when they pull us over, when we see them out. But they've got that uniform and they've got that office, and that office demands our respect. It demands us to respect the authority of the law that they represent. And so the man of God, he is, you know, in, in my foolishness as a young man, I held them in high regard. I thought, man, those men of God, those are the, the real servants of God. And it's easy to think that. So you stand here, and then you think, man, they're... They're just as weak as I am. And so the men are not to be held as some great thing because they are what God's made them to be. And without the work of God, they're sinners just like the world is sinners. But God's given an office to some that, and their, their office is to preach the Word of God, to be over and to watch over and to admonish and to correct. Nobody likes to be corrected anymore. We don't think the preacher ought to correct, that the gospel ought to correct my life because I ought to be right however that I live. But Paul says that these men, they've got an office and a title that's to be respected and looked to as those that are put there by God. So we believe, we believe God calls men to preach. We believe that God through the Spirit puts evidence with those that He calls to preach. I, I believe this and I, I believe you do as well. Somebody says they're called to preach. We can tell it real quick when they get up behind the pulpit. That's right. and, and that's known by the evidence of the Holy Ghost and the witness of God on what they say and how they do. Amen. And so then, that office is not elected by man, but God calls man into that. And you know, we, we can think of an example in the Old Testament in Numbers 16, how that there's Moses and Aaron. And you know what they were? The men that God chose to hold that office over Israel. And Korah and some of the princes of the congregation, they said, Moses, Aaron, you're taking too much on you. And what really they're saying you think you're better. We can do what you do. We can do that just as good as you can do that. 
We can ha- have uh, what you've got and better. But you know, really, it looks like at first that they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron. It's them. But really, when you, when you boil it all down and you think about that, what they're doing is rebelling against the order that God had established for Israel. If God put Moses there and I'm trying to run Moses off, I'm trying to undo what God has done. And by rebelling then against the gospel, I'm no better than Korah. I'm trying to buck up against that that God has ordered, ordained, and established. So he says, uh, uh, know them, so recognize those that God has ordained for the work of the ministry. We can do that. I, I don't believe in it by any means that we ought to accept or lay hands on everything coming and going. Absolutely not. That's why he says know them. Recognize them. Take note that this is a man that God has called for this office and not because of the man, but for the work's sake and the labor that's in that work. There's a labor that's there. There's a labor in the work of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. And for the work's sake and for the office, that title ought to be respected. It ought to be. He says... We beseech you, know them which labor, which are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. That word means to put in mind or to caution. Isn't it wonderful that God's put a watchman in the coast, and, you know, He calls Ezekiel a watchman. That word then meant something. Because in those days, they lived in walled cities. They didn't have gunpowder. So they used walls as a great protection. And they had watchmen on the walls. And they were watching for the enemy armies to be coming. And they would send out a sound when they saw the enemy approaching to take the city. And so God in His city has put watchmen. And they're not necessarily watching out over the outside of the city, but they're watching over the inside. And as God lets them to see this one's falling into error, God would allow the Word of God to come and correct and caution and admonish that, son, you're beginning to drift into a bad place. You're beginning to drift into that that's going to get you in trouble. Your thinking is beginning to separate you and God, and the Word of God comes to caution me that I'm falling into error and falling away from God. And so that we ought to appreciate that, that God has placed men in order to preach the gospel that it might caution me and keep me from falling into error. Paul says in Hebrews chapter number 13, and I I believe this is very familiar to you, Hebrews chapter number 13, verse number 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable unto you. So these men of God, they're, they're serving not at the pleasure of the church. I'm, I'm not preaching because the church wanted me to preach, but because God called me into this. And so I'm not the servant of the church. I'm the servant of the Lord. And I serve the church because that's what the Lord commands me to do. We got to have our priorities in line. And so the men of God, they're not accountable to the church, although I ought to be. But the real accountability there is that I'm accountable to God. Amen. Boy, that's a lot weightier than just being accountable to the church. And so God's called us into this. God's gave us this weight. God's put the Word of God upon our heart. God calls us to preach the Word of God. And so we must do that whether you like it or not, whether the church accepts it or not, whether they throw us out in the, in the road or not, God's called us to preach the gospel. And so Paul says here, it's better that you obey and subordinate to the Word of God rather than to reject them and it be grievous to them to preach. That they might do it with joy. My hell, I tell you, there's a great difference and being preaching and it being heard and accepted and appreciated and preaching and it being 
spit back in your face. Mm -hmm. One's a great joy and one's grievous. Mm The Word of God says that's unprofitable for the man of God to carry a grievous burden to preach you the gospel. It ought to be respected. It ought to be looked up to. And when the man gets behind the stand, we ought not to look and say, well, there's Mike, I like him. He's a pretty friendly fella. And I like the way he does. But it ought to be a little different. I do love Mike. But when he gets up here, there's the watchman that God's ordained to preach the gospel, we ought to look to that and to that office and give reverence and attention and to hear the warning that God would have for our souls. Because that man's accountable to God. God's put him in this way to labor for us and to esteem them very highly for the work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves so that there be peace Amongst the church, in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. That God is no longer out to make war and to destroy us. We're at peace with God. And so God says, be at peace among yourselves. That in the church there would be a unity and a peace between the members. And God forbid that we come in and the church be divided one against another. I can, If there is division one against another or a faction here and a faction there, know this, that that was not the product of God Almighty. Because if, if I am, now think about it. If I'm where I ought to be and I'm seeking and desiring the truth of the Scripture and for my life to line up with the Scripture and you're seeking the same thing, then we're able to come down here and we've got the same mind and the same heart and the same desire and I can pray that God would strengthen and help you along the way and you could pray the same thing. No, I tell you where division comes from. It's outside of the Word of God. It's outside of the leadership of the Holy Ghost. And James said, these are not of God. These are earthly, sensual, and devilish. And so God says, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. That word unruly, it means insubordinate or unarranged. Unruly, they're they're out of order. Warn them. Caution them. Don't allow that error to go on. You can look at that as those that are without, I believe. And they ought to be warned. We know the end of the road that they're on. They need warning. They need caution that the wrath of God abides on the lifestyle that's separate from Jesus Christ. But in the church as well, those that are out of order, they need to be corrected. You know, there's an order for the church to gather in. God put, and and you know, the, the world, the word in the New Testament for world, if you look that up, often it's the Greek word that means the orderly arrangement. God created this world in an order and in an arrangement for His purpose. Well, He he did the same thing for the church. There is an order and a way that God built the church and established it, and there's an order that as we gather, there ought to be an order to the service. Do all things with decency and in order. And so if we're outside of the order of God, that ought to be corrected. If I begin to step out of bounds and get out of arrangement, there ought to be somebody down at the church that says, now wait a minute, you're overstepping the bounds that God has placed for His church. I realize that is a very unpleasant place to be. But God's established this, that you would correct and help me, and that I could correct and help you, and that as the church would gather, there wouldn't be anybody unruly or out of order, out of the arrangement or the place that God intended it to be. Paul said it a little sharper in the book of Titus. Titus chapter number 1, 
Verse number 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. So here's some that's out of order. They're teaching righteousness by the works and deeds of man. And I say this, anything that's taught or spoken that is contrary to sound doctrine, that needs to be corrected. I I believe we could see, I I can't remember their names exactly, but there was a couple that was teaching the Word of God. And the Bible says He brought them in and explained the Word of God to them more perfectly that they might be able when they stand to teach, when they go to teach the children, when they stand to testify, when they preach the gospel, that there might be the the right doctrine and the right thing taught. So he says on over, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. Don't allow this ungodliness and really... This reputation. My God, to have a reputation at the church that things are unruly and out of order. That ought not be in our world. The world on the outside, that if I would say, look, there's a a church just down the road from you, Crossroads. I've been there. I know those folks. It's a good place. The gospel's preached. You ought to go there. That in their heart they would say, I know those folks too, and they're unruly. God help, that ought not be. So God says, rebuke those that are out of arrangement. And now rebuke, it don't mean that I I just beat you down under the floor. But it's the same word to caution. I've got it wrote down here, the word. To put in mind or to caution. I'm to call your mind to what God says in the Scriptures that everything might be in order. Comfort the feeble-minded. So in the church now, I, I realize there's, there's a great mindset in our world today that if you're weaker than me, it's because I'm better than you. If I know more than you, it's because I've worked harder than you have. If I'm stronger in the faith, it's because I've done something by working out to become stronger. But in Corinthians now, in Corinthians, Paul asked the question, if you've received this, why do you glory as if you didn't? And who is it that maketh you to differ? So who makes different? Do I make myself better than you? No, it's God that makes. If you're strong in the faith, God's made you to be strong. Glory to God that He's made you strong. And if you're weak, God's made you to be weak. Glory to God that He's made you to be weak. Because we all have a purpose and a reason. And He says to comfort the feeble-minded, those that are infirm, those that are weak, He says to do that because we're here to build one another up. You know, the husband and wife relationship there, there's a picture of what's going on. That there's the weaker vessel that maybe is more emotional and thinking, and there's the man that's more logical and thinking, but you put them together and you've got a great set there that balances each other out. That's the way the church is. We're as a building that's built out of stone, and God's put some great stones in there, but God's put some smaller stones in there as well, and we're there to all work together for one cause. It's not about who the smartest one is, or who the biggest one is, or who can pray the loudest, or who knows the most, but it's God that's put us here and we're here to labor for the good of one another. Think soberly. Not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Chris read that this morning. You know where that comes from? A trust or a belief that what I'm doing is somehow making me better than you are. But that's not the case. We're to comfort the feeble-minded. So he says in Luke chapter 22. The Lord Jesus says this to Simon Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, 
Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And so Peter, Peter said there, he said, I'm, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go and die with you. If you're going to die, that's where I'm going. And Jesus informed him, you're going to deny me three times. And you know that denial there, really, that failure. My, here's Peter that thinks, boy, I'm going to stand for the Lord. And I'm going to really make a difference for the Lord. And he denies him. And to God's truth, he don't even realize what's going on till the cock crows and Jesus looks at him. And the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. He failed. And he failed miserably. And you know where he was right there? A place of great weakness. I believe there his heart was broken because he now recognized just how weak that he really was. He was in a state that he was begging God for mercy and for forgiveness. And now remember now that in the last of John, the Lord Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? He denied him three times. The Lord Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You failed me now, Peter. You recognize what you really are. You're not better than these other disciples. You're not stronger than they are. You're just as apt to fail as they are. And you are as well. You're not stronger or more able than anybody else to withstand the trials of the devil. I realize when I fall, it's easy for you to look and say, my God, what a weak man that that is. But I tell you in just a moment, the Lord could say, look, you're going to fall now. I'm going to pull my hand back just for a minute or two and let you see what you really are. Oh, and how quickly we go down. We don't even recognize we're going down till God comes back by and says, look at what you've done. And our heart is broken. But the Lord says, listen, Peter, Satan's desired to sift you. What's going to happen to you in just a little while? Your denial of me, it would be that that would tear you down. It did Judas. Judas couldn't take his failure and he hung himself. And his bowels gushed out. Jesus says, Peter, Satan's desire to sift you is sweet. That anything good about you be pushed right on through and all that be left is the trash. My God, when you begin to sift us, you know what we have? We have an appearance of goodness, an appearance of righteousness, but you run it through the sifter and you begin to see the trash that we really are. I don't mean that mean. That's just God's truth. I believe you begin to sift yourself. You can see very quickly and easily what you are. But Jesus says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith not fail. You're not going to fall out over this failure, but remember this, when you're converted, remember how weak that you were, remember how sinful that you were, and you go out and strengthen them that are weak. And so God, He's got weak people right now that in a day or two He may make to be strong. And when we're strengthened, and when we're wise and when we're noble in the power of God, He's put us there to be a strength to others that are weak because we've been there. Peter knew what it meant to be weak and to be condemned, but the Lord Jesus brought him out of that. And it's to the Lord that we look to strengthen us. And this is the cause that I could help you if my cause is to be strong, that you would look in glory at me, then we've got the wrong idea. This is for the good of the church. I study the Word of God. Not that you might glory in how much I know, but that I could somehow help you to understand the Word of God. We testify 
Not that you would look at how wise we are. We sing. Not that you would say how beautiful a voice the tap man has. But the truth is we come to the church and our true mindset ought to be, God, let us be a help to those that we're round about. Let us somehow strengthen them that are weak in this world. Because we could be weak in just a moment and in just a twinkling of an eye. Support the weak and be patient toward all men. So comfort the feeble-minded, the faint-hearted. Support the weak. I believe two very, very similar things there. And be patient. Patient means to be long-spirited toward all men. Now our nature is, they don't deserve it. They have stepped on my toe, and I'm not going to allow that to slide They do not deserve any long-spiritedness. Now that's just the nature of man. That's the way we everyone are. We love them that love us. We don't love them that don't. But you know the Lord. How was the Lord towards you? Did you ever step on the Lord's toes? Did you ever do the Lord wrong? Did you ever sin and come short? Of what the Lord wanted you to do? Did He wadge you up and throw you in the trash at that moment? You know what He was? Long-suffering. Through years of sin when we were lost and undone, and even through years since He saved us, God is long-spirited with us every day. And that when I do something, that deserves to be wadded up and trashed. And how often does that happen? Hmm. I mean, how often does it happen that I ought to just be thrown away and God calls somebody new to do this work? God could do that. God said to Moses, stand back. I'm going to wad these people up and throw them away and I'll just make a new people through you. Could God have done that? He wouldn't have broken the promise to Abraham because Moses was in the lineage of Abraham. God could have done that. I tell you, God could, God could do away with me and David and Mike and us never preach another message. Right. And He could call three men that could do double the preaching Amen. that we do. But you know what He does? He's long-suffering with us. Amen. And He's merciful with us. And God says, because I'm long-suffering, I expect you to be long-suffering and long-spirited. Because we're all at different phases of this Christian walk. We're all at different phases of our knowledge and understanding of the Scripture. We're not all mighty men. We're not all Davids. We're not all deacons. And we're not all teachers. But we're all a part of the church of the living God. So when I misunderstand, or when I don't know, or when I slip, we ought not throw them away. Because God's not. We've got a parable in Luke. Again, the unmerciful servant. You know, he he owed his master, and I'm just going to throw in numbers, $500,000. And he came to his master and said, I can't pay that debt. And his master forgave him. And then he went out and there was a man that owed him 50. And he said, throw that man in prison till he pays me back. Now think about, think about how that looks. And that here we are, that God has, and to say, patiently endured and been long-suffering with us, there's no way I can say that, that it's not an understatement. Think about the patience and long-suffering and long-spiritedness that God's had towards us as, as we failed Him as we've let down on our end, as we've sinned and erred, think about how long-suffering that God's been with me and now I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to quickly cut you down. That's contrary to God. God don't want His church to be contrary to Him, but be patient toward all. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and toward all. So rendering evil for evil. I believe this is going back to the law. An eye for an eye. 
And that when I'm done wrong, I'm not satisfied until the other party is equally done wrong. When I'm spoken evil of, I'm not satisfied until I speak evil of them. Well, the Lord says, see that none render evil for evil. Because now if, if that's the way I act, and that's the way David acts, and I start it, and he continues it, what's going to wind up is a, a series that never ends. Right. But it's always building. And it's getting worse and worse. And before long, our wives don't like each other. And before long, some of the church is drawn in and say, you know, I like Joseph better than David. I'm on his side. And before long, because I couldn't be done wrong one time. Don't render evil for evil. Know this. God says vengeance is mine. I will repay. Well, God ought to bring vengeance on them. I wonder, are you glad God didn't bring vengeance on you today? See, man wants justice in a lot of ways. But boy, we don't want justice for me. Because when I get justice, I'm going to be the one destroyed. So when I pray for me, I pray God, just like the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Jesus, look upon me. Don't look upon me for what I've done today, but look at me through the blood of your son Jesus and that's the way I ought to look at you as well. Because you know what we all are? We've all got an evil nature. We've all got a flesh that we war with. And the God's truth, we're all going through things that we may not realize and recognize. So when I'm done wrong and when evil's done to me, I ought to be able to pray and say, Oh God, would you help them to see that and don't render it back because divisions now the devil would that the devil desires to divide and cause trouble but the Lord Jesus the Bible says in Peter when he was reviled reviled not again you know what he did he bore it all on the cross and now had he rendered evil for the evil done to him he would have done what they said. He would have come off of the cross, right. called ten legions of angels, and brought great judgment upon all men, and all would be damned to eternal judgment and destruction right. in hell. But Jesus bore wrong. And He says, if you're done wrong, you bear it and hush about it. Right. And if you're going to complain, don't complain to the church don't complain to sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so. You come to me in God and pray unto me. Follow that which is good, both among yourselves and toward all. So what ought we to desire? The good of man. The good. What is good? There's none good but one, and that's God. You know, the enemy, the greatest enemy you've got in the Lord, if they were to be saved tonight, they would no longer be your enemy in the Lord. You know what's the problem? The devil and the wickedness and corruptness and the fallen condition of man is the problem. You know what we ought to desire? God redeem them. Yes. Save them. Paul the Apostle, I believe in this day, was the greatest enemy the church had ever had. And God saved him. And you know what he became? The greatest friend. That the church had in that day. He became the greatest representative of the gospel of Jesus. And the Bible says in Galatians, they didn't know me by face, but they heard that that man that once destroyed the church was now preaching the gospel. The enemy had been converted. And what glory it brought. Paul said in Galatians, and they glorified God in me. To the glory of of God the Savior. I've got to hurry or we're not going to get even part through. Rejoice evermore to be full of cheer, calmly happy. In Philippians, this is the way he says it there. Remembering that these are all letters to churches, so you'll find a lot of similarities between them. Philippians 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again I say, rejoice. Is there anything that the church has that she can rejoice in? I mean, God says in the Word, rejoice evermore. You know what the devil would like? Scripture that you've well known and thought of many times in your life. That Simon Peter, as he steps out of the ship and is walking on the water to the Lord, where does his eyes go? His eyes go on the situation. His eyes go on the storm and the waves and the boisterousness. And his heart began to fear and he sank. You know, that's the way the devil wants to do us. He'd like to steal our rejoicing. He'd like for us to look. And the God's truth is, this life, I believe, as Jacob testified to Pharaoh, and as Job said, it is few days and full of trouble. I realize Jacob said it a little different, but they both said the same thing, that this life is filled with trouble. And if we get hung up on the trouble, our ability to rejoice in what God has done quickly fades. We're like Peter. We look on the situation and our eyes leave the Savior bleeding and dying on the cross for our salvation. And we're no longer able to rejoice in the work that He's done. But God says rejoice. The church has something that even in death, even in the darkest hour that this man could face, as I'm closing my eyes for the last time and going to leave this world, that I could rejoice that I'm going to be with the Savior that redeemed me. And so God says rejoice evermore and pray without ceasing. Boy, that's an arrow to the heart of the crowd that says praying's really not that important. And that we really don't need to focus that much on praying. I realize that sounds bad when you hear my voice say it, but in our minds, that's precisely how we think. Because the devil's there. And remember, he's at enmity with God. He's at enmity with the church. He's at enmity with the Word of God. And he's seeking to rob and to steal. But God says to pray without ceasing that our hearts might always be in communion with heaven. A lot of times prayer is just a few words to ease my conscience to say that I prayed. That way I can lay down and say, well, I, I did pray this evening. But you know, prayer really, that's the gift of God that I, by the presence of the Spirit and through the blood of Jesus, could commune with heaven. We've got a picture of it in Revelation that there John is looking at the throne of God. He's looking in heaven where God is sitting on the throne of all things and there's the lamb there in the midst of the throne and there is a censer with incense rising up before the nostrils of God. Not before the president, not before the king, but in glory where God's sitting is incense rising up and the angel says, John, let me tell you what that is. Mm -hmm. That's the prayers of the saints of God. Amen. That's them as they, as they fall on their face in a terrestrial and in a wicked world. They fall on their face and pray and by the Spirit their prayer is carried even under the nostrils of God Almighty. <laughs> and through Jesus, God can breathe in our prayers and God can minister unto us our needs as His will sees fit. It is glorious. Law, have mercy. How that we can fall on our face and it come before God Almighty. Amen. Ain't that wonderful? Amen. Ah, we don't need to do that though. Oh. That's silly thinking. My God, how that we ought to be in prayer. You know what God's saying? I tell you. People of this world, they don't want you to call them. That's the truth. We don't want to be bothered when we're busy. Don't bother me when I'm at work. Don't bother me when I'm laid down in the bed. But I tell you what God says. God says pray without ceasing. God says, I've given you this opportunity. You can call on me as you see fit. And God says in Peter, 
Cast all your care upon me. Call me. And I think the best picture of that is Hezekiah going down in the temple and he's got the letter that the enemy wrote him that said, we're coming to kill you. And Hezekiah brought the letter down and he laid it down and said, God, this is what I'm facing. This is what I'm dealing with. This is where I'm at. Would you help me in the hour of need that I have? Amen. Well, preacher, God already knows. I, I full well recognize that God already knows. I believe this. I believe God knows there's a need well before I ever see a need coming. Amen. But that does not mean that I shouldn't pray because God says to pray. Amen. Well, I mean, I don't know how you argue with that. If God says it, how much greater weight can I put on it? God says we ought to pray. And so in, in Philippians, again, where we just were in chapter 4, just a verse or two down below, this is what the Bible says there. Be careful. Now that word careful, to be anxious or fearful about. Be anxious or fearful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So the Word of God says, listen, don't be anxious and fearful about it, but you've got a means to come before the throne of God. And I tell you this, it's even, it's even sweeter than just to a throne where the King of all glory is sitting. But we're not coming to Him as servants. We're not coming to Him as just little peasants in His kingdom, but we come to Him and Paul said in two places and Jesus said, Abba, Father. We can come and say, Oh, Father, I need your strength here. And the Father's eyes are on His elect. They are. They're on them. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry whether God hears when we pray. I can come to God by the Spirit and through the Lord Jesus Christ and He's promised that He'll hear me. If our heart condemn us not, we have confidence. Brethren, if your heart condemn you, God's greater than your heart. I write these things that you sin not. Joseph, it'd be better if you didn't sin. But if you do sin, we've got a propitiation. I've got a sacrifice that I can come to God with that God will accept me. Oh, we've got a means to come to God. Ought we not take advantage of that? Well, I just don't see the need in it. I just get disheartened. Friends, we've got an enemy that's a liar and a deceiver and he seeks to bring us downward. But he is a liar. And the Father of it, by the Word of God, we can be strengthened and helped. In everything, give thanks. So he says in Philippians, the verse we just read. I'm sorry, I know I'm turning a lot. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Here in Thessalonians... In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Being grateful under the hand of God. I wonder in truth now, what have we got to be grateful unto God about? Anything to be thankful for? But see the devil again, we look at the waves that's about to overtake us and we lose our gratitude towards God. Not When we're in that mindset now, we lose sight of, well, the boat could have sank several hours ago and we could have done went down. That if it wasn't for God, we'd already be at the bottom of the ocean without a But I tell you, we can be thankful that God's brought us thus far, that we're in His family and we ought to give gratitude and thanks to God in everything. Amen. Even when great trouble comes, you better believe it. Because great trouble could have come and me be lost without hope. 
But God has by His grace saved us. And if for nothing else, listen to how silly that that sounds. What greater work could God have done for you than to save your eternal soul from the pits of hell by the death of His Son Jesus? There was no greater love than that. There's no greater miracle than that the dead in sin could be resurrected. And I, there's no greater wonder and awe, when you think about it, that God's taking little pieces of dust of the seed of Adam and making them to be children of God and joint heirs yeah. with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I ain't got nothing to be thankful for but my salvation. Well, friend, let's flip that around. There's no greater thing you could have to be thankful for than to our salvation. Don't be bitter towards God. This is the will. That word will, it means the determination, the choice, or the decree of God. God would have to show gratitude and thankfulness to Him for His goodness. You ever seen somebody... A young and that's ungrateful. Mm -hmm. Ain't that ain't that sickening it to is. see? Somebody's bought a present. Somebody spent their hard-earned money, and they look at it and well, I didn't want that, and throw it down. Mm. My God, that that don't even make me mad. That breaks my heart mm -hmm. to see that, even in my own children. That breaks my heart to see the lack of consideration of what that cost somebody else and the thought that they had to buy that. Mm -hmm. Now, if they buy a $10 little toy that's going to break in a week, that don't matter. They've bought that, they've thought of that, and they ought to be grateful for that. Don't you agree? Amen. Don't you agree that they ought to be grateful? Well, my God, the Lord Jesus Christ thought of us when we were with sin and He came down from heaven in a flesh because of us and our failure and He gave, He didn't give ten dollars. He didn't give a year's wages. He gave everything He had. Yes, he was poured out unto death. Even the death of the cross that we could be brought into the kingdom should we not show a little gratitude for what God has done for us. Oh, I tell you, when our mind is sober and right, we'll be like David, the psalmist, when he said, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise Him, all you people, for His wonderful kindness. Yeah. The Lord Amen. Amen indeed. I ought not ask God anything without thanking Him first. That I've even got a means to get on my face. And God, I've sinned you today. I've failed you. I've come short. But I can come in confidence through Jesus. God, I'm thankful for what you've done for me. Show some gratitude. Quit the Spirit. Now, if this wasn't possible, God would not have put this in the Word of God. This... In order for God to say this, it must be possible for me to quench. It's a picture of a fire and throwing water on it. That's right. I'm extinguishing the Spirit of God. He says, I believe in Ephesians, grieve not the Holy Spirit. So this is possible. I ought to be careful not to quench, not to grieve, not to extinguish the work of the Spirit of God as He's working in the church. I believe there are several ways we can do that. I believe, you know, if I am living unruly, as we said before, and God would like for me to testify, but my unruliness has given me that bad breath, I've quenched the ability of the Spirit to work through me because my reputation has been tarnished. Right? I mean, if I believe we could all see this and agree that if I'm found to be with another woman, you're not going to want me back here preaching again. If I marry again, 
you're not going to want me back here preaching because this is the reason, because I've, I've left what God called me and I no longer match to the qualifications of the Word of God. I, don't, I, I can come, I can worship, I'm still a saint of God, but I've, I've failed the qualifications that the Bible lays for that. And any work that I could have done for the Lord, I've quenched by my actions. Wouldn't you say that's true? So what we ought to be is careful in our behavior, but it's well careful to be obedient to His inclinations. Because as God is moving through the service, He says in Proverbs, and it's, it's one of my favorite little Proverbs, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pitchers of silver. I, there's nothing better than a word fitly spoken by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It can strengthen me. It can help the man of God. It can bless the church. It can help the weak. It can serve the purpose that God has for that. So what I ought to be when I come down to the house of God, I ought to be sensitive to what God would bid me to do. Now that don't mean just flop any old way. Because that's just as ungodly as the other, I believe. But I tell you, being sensitive to the inspiration and the moving of the Spirit of God, and if God would bid me, I don't care if it's to come and pray or to testify, if God would bid me to do something for Him, that I would not quench that by disobeying what He would have for me to do. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. So I realize... Prophets, there are no prophets today in the sense of the Old Testament biblical foretelling prophets. But the word also means an inspired speaker. And you know, even, even psychics that are out in our world today, they're able to tell your future by what they claim is some medium to another world. Wouldn't you say that's true? Mm -hmm. So even they recognize that this ain't of me. I'm getting it from somewhere else. So the prophets of God, they were very much like that. They weren't some wise people that had the vision to see into the future. But what they did was speak what God inspired them to speak. And so in the church, those that speak, that sing, that move by the inspiration of the Spirit, they're prophesying. They're speaking by the inspiration of God. And He says, despise not. You reckon that happens? Somebody is inspired to pray. Somebody's inspired to testify. Somebody's got a need. And oh God, here they go again. But if it's of the Lord... Don't despise that. That's the Lord that's inspired it. Now again, we're going we're gonna to prove it right here. Prove all things to test or to scrutinize. Hold fast to that, which is good. Now I do not say, nor do I, I, I don't want to promote and I don't want you to get the idea that I'm saying we ought to go along with everything coming and going. But I ought to be able to prove it. I ought to be able to put it to the test and see where it come from. You know, if, if I had a, 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 a diamond the size of a baseball, and I took it down to Allen's tomorrow morning and said, I want to sell this. You reckon there's going to be any proving go on? I, they're going to get that down, and they're going to examine that, and they're going to make sure that what they're paying for is genuine and real. Well, the church ought to be that way as well. Why, preacher, we ought not judge. We've heard that all our life. That's the favorite verse of the unbeliever and the rejecter of God. And I say this, I ought not judge. I shouldn't throw a man out as condemned and hopelessly lost. I should never do that. I'm not the judge in that sense. But boy, I'll tell you what I can do. I can prove whether things are right or not. Right. Now, what do we have to prove? I'd say Allen's has got a tester down there that puts light into the diamond to determine whether it's genuine or not. They've got a tool to help them to determine the legitimacy of that. Has the church got anything God, to prove 
or to test? I believe we've got two great things. We've got, first of all, the Word of God in Scripture. And, and i tell you this, whether it's a song, a testimony, and I don't mean this to be mean, and I don't know, I'm not saying that I've heard one here either. There's a lot of songs that they don't line up with the book. The, even that ought to be proved. And if it don't line up with a scripture, if the testimony don't line up with a scripture, if what I'm saying is contrary to the word of God, you can throw me out. That's not of God. God does not testify to that. That is contrary to his holy word. I can prove it by scripture. And John says this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they're of God. We have the Holy Ghost of God. You know, the world don't have that. I could get up and slobber and cry a little and say that's the Spirit of God and you get a little warm, fuzzy feeling. You know what I'm talking about. You watch a little movie. You can even watch a little kid's movie, a little cartoon, and something happens and you get a little fuzzy feeling. It makes you happy to see that. I'm not being silly. That's the truth. That's the truth. And people get that little fuzzy feeling like that and say, there's the Spirit of God. And you know, them that are lost, they feel that and they say, well, I I felt that. That must be the Spirit of God. You ever felt the Spirit watching Toy Story? See how silly that is? No, absolutely not. It's not a little fuzzy feeling, but it is the presence of God in the Spirit. And them that are saved, they know who He is. And when I get up and say, boy, that was a blessing of the Spirit, you ought to be able to know the difference. Try them and see. And I tell you, when you try them and it's genuine and it's real, hold fast to that. Hold to that which is good. If it passes the test, embrace that and love it and grow on it. But if it does not, don't embrace it. Don't bring it up. Don't lay hands on it. Cast it away from you. That's not of God. Don't Don't even amen it. You're causing great damage. You are laying hands and being a partaker that it's not of God. I'm sorry that I've been so long. Abstain from all appearance of evil. I heard a fella say this. Maybe this sounds silly, but he meant it when he said it. He said, you know where I work? There's an ABC store right there on the corner. He said, sometimes that red light takes forever. He said, I could just cut through and cut through the parking lot and get up to work a lot faster. But I don't do that. Just in case somebody sees me driving there, and they say, well, i seen him turn into the liquor store. I believe that's what he's saying here. Abstain, refrain, hold yourself from even the appearance of evil. You don't want to even give the appearance of sin and rebellion towards God because, friends, it's more than just my reputation. But if I fail and and even give the appearance of evil, I've caused great harm to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the enemies of the cross that's heard me preach, they say, I told you that he didn't have it. I told you that he was a fraud. The devil's there. He's waiting to do that. He'd like to say, I told you that the church was a fraud. I tell you, it's more than just abstaining from sin. But God says, abstain from the very appearance of it. Don't even give that idea in the hearts and the minds of them that are lost and undone. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. I tell you what God's going to do. I'm going to be holy to the uttermost sanctified one day. I am looking to the day that I am rid of the old nature and completely pure in a new body and in a new life in glory with a Father. Well, preacher, you've laid some hard things before us. I realize that this is a warfare. Paul told Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier. We didn't sign up to be a part of the weekly cigar club. 
but we've been called into warfare as soldiers of God Almighty in this wicked world. And as we fight and as we war, as we battle, we can look to this. I believe in World War II and World War I and Vietnam, there was men with family back home, with a wife back home, and as they went through the trudges and the, the filth and the, the hardships of war, they could say, you know what I've got? I tell you, when I get out of this place, I've got family back home to give to. I tell you, the church has got something greater than a wife back home. You might come back and your wife left you. That happened. Boy, I tell you, God ain't like that. We're serving a God that, yep, we're in battle today. I'm facing a hardship today, but know this, the day's coming that I'm going to be out of the army and I'm going to get to rest with my Savior. Paul said the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory yet to be revealed. I pray God your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming. Do you believe that? Time is short. Whether He comes or not, time's short for us on the battlefield. So Timothy, endure hardness and fight as a good soldier while you have time to fight. And while you have opportunity, you fight and war as a good soldier of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go to war and you keep in your mind when the devil would discourage you, you remember that this sanctification is coming at the very last day. But Paul says, I'm praying this as well, that your body, your mind, your spirit. Let let me read it. I'm going to butcher that if I don't. Your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's praying for that. Now, if what he said earlier is true, then he don't need to pray that God redeems me at the end, does he? If my salvation is sure, then why should you pray for my salvation? So he must be saying something else there. He's praying that as they live... And as they walk, and as they war, that the grace of God would be with them. You know what we ought to pray? If we pray for anything, we ought to fall on our face and pray, God, your grace be with me today. Strengthen me, and help me, and lead me, and guide me. Keep me sober-minded. Keep my eyes towards the cross and let me fight today as a good soldier to the praise of the glory of your grace that called me to be this. Thank God.